Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 22 of the Egon Carlos Tennis Show. Uh, this is your host, Juan, joined as always by my co-host, Damien, here. And we are recapping the 2024 Australian Open. Obviously, a pretty exciting end to the tournament as a whole. Um, we did have Alcaraz losing in the quarterfinals, so we're we're going to cover that as well, as well as the rest of the women's tournament, men's tournament. But overall, pretty exciting tournament uh, on both tours and a lot of takeaways as we uh, record this statement. Yeah, um, we were thinking whether to record after instantly after Alcaraz lost to Zverev, but then we figured that still like there should be some episode on the takes post-Australian Open relating to Alcaraz and Świątek, but also relating to the rivals. So it just made more sense for us to record after the whole tournament is done. But of course, yeah, this will be a bit more of a Carlos-centric episode. Uh, the last one was a bit of more of an Iga one since, of course, that was after she lost and he was still in the event. But we'll definitely touch on both tours. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I mean, after we recorded, we had uh, Alcaraz has completed his third round match, of course, and Svantec went out to Noskova. Uh, but after that, Alcaraz won against Mirmir Kachmanovic, 6-4, 6-4, 6 love. And obviously, that was like this very impressive display yeah. from him, shot making, and he just looked, uh, you know, some of the best tennis we'd, we'd seen from him post-Mimbledon. So going after that performance, going into this Zverev one, you had a feeling that it was going to be more competitive than the US Open. But were you sort of surprised the way it uh, the way it panned out, uh, you know, given what happened at the end? Yeah, it would be weird if I wasn't, definitely. As you yeah. said, the Kitsmanovic performance was just fabulous. That was I actually think there's been a few like these since Wimbledon. It's just that the big matches have sort of lacked for the most part when it comes to Alcaraz. Uh, but um, I think there's been a few like this, but probably the Kitsmanovic one will be the main example. Yeah, he was just, I don't know if he was playing smart, but he was just flying all around the court and choosing all the risky shots and pulling them off. I mean, especially yeah. the forehand cross on the run was just, um, yeah, I mean, winner after winner from that wing. And obviously Kitsmanovic also coming off back to back five setters probably wasn't too fresh at the time. Uh, but Zverev was also another rival whom we thought that maybe will not be too fresh. I was definitely approaching the Zverev-Alcaraz match with a little bit of a... Yeah, like, of course, Zverev has been struggling. He has been playing very passive as well in some key moments, like against Nori, not necessarily the match against Klein, where like, he was just sort of getting blasted of the court, but against Nori especially, uh, he was just really waiting for errors. But then again, you know that if Zverev plays you know, with balls, let's say, <laughs> in the quarterfinal... And uh, he does that sometimes against top players. If he is able to hit through the forehand, he might cause some issues. And um, I guess we just never really expected Alcaraz to be so off in the opening two sets, which was a big part of that, of course. But still, until like 5-3 in the third, Zverev was playing this perfect performance of, you know, another really good example of like how talented he is. I think his issues sort of either going against the big three or now against the new gen, against Sinner, against Alcaraz, is definitely more so mental than quality-wise. I think quality-wise, he's you know up there with someone like Medvedev, for example, but of course, he's never really been able to produce on the biggest stages. So for him to get this done after the third set, well, minor choke, let's say. Well, I think I actually think it, we can call it a choke because that was the moment when we first started seeing some pushier, loopier foreheads, 5-3 in the third. Um, and um, yeah, then, of course, you start thinking about whether Alcaraz can pull off the comeback. Zverev is definitely looking lost mentally in the tiebreak as well because uh, that was perhaps probably to, sort, sort of similar to how he played the tiebreakers against uh, Hurkacz at the United Cup, where he almost lost, of course, the first, uh, bo both of them, uh, the second one eventually turning it around. But like he was just approaching the net on every shot suddenly for whatever reason. Of course, Alcaraz passed him like three or four times in that tiebreak. And um, eventually uh, we still didn't get like a very, I would, I would say very uh, mature version of Alcaraz in set four. Like we, we just didn't really see him take that momentum and suddenly play up to his best standards, which I guess, you know, it's fine. I mean, this was a very 20 year old performance, but the guy is 20 year old. So it wasn't a 20 year old performance from a guy who is 30, who should have all the experience on the tour already. I mean, maybe it's just a good, uh, reminder for us that, uh, well, he still has ways to go. And uh, of course, the Australian Open, this was the first time he played it since 2022. Probably not his favorite slam, like out of the, uh, out of all four right now, I would probably place it lowest. 
So definitely no time to sort of worry about him yet. Uh, we'll see how he how he keeps going at the uh, at the slams especially, but also at the ATP thousand soon, which all pretty much should be more to his liking. I mean, I don't know about Miami, but he's won it in the past. But basically, the first five ATP thousands that we're going to get before Ron Garros, I mean, he should like them all. So uh, I think that um, time to worry will be when that doesn't pan out for him. Yeah, of course, no, no need to really worry or press the panic button yet. Of course, if you zoom into the bigger picture, you know he is, he has still won two of the biggest tournaments in, in Grand Slam tennis in Wimbledon and the U.S. Open, and of course, you know still going pretty much deep in all these majors. Uh, I agree, it definitely wasn't a mature performance. It definitely you stole the words right out of my mouth when you said you know feels like a, twenty year old, because the, you know that's very much, we saw him kind of panic a little bit, you know when couldn't really find the solutions to work around Zverev, who was serving at a very high clip, 85% for serve in, and when he serves like that, the whole match basically for four sets. At times in the first couple of sets, I felt like his serve was almost unplayable. Yes. Uh, of course, Alcaraz was also struggling sometimes to, uh, you know, on the first serve return, maybe figuring out if he should block some more returns, move back on some some occasions. Um, but nonetheless, he, it was a very error-strone performance from the baseline, where I felt like he didn't quite have the... Um, the court set sometimes to uh, you know mix up mix up the spins and the heights and make generate makes Zverev generate his own pace. Where a lot of the times he sort of was fight, trying to fight fire with fire again. And it sounds crazy to say that about his Zverev performance, but Zverev was really taking his forehand very early, coming in behind it, approaching the net uh, with a ton of success. Especially his forehand down the line when he hits that shot really big. All of a sudden he has that freedom and he feels uh, a lot more liberated. And we see those peak versions of Zverev that we saw him saw when he won the ATP Finals a couple of times. And of course, a ton of other best of three success. And it's always come when he's played those top players like the big three and uh, you know other top ten players. In bed, I'd I'd not seen a sustained level from him like this, you know, in a major in quite some time. Of course, you had the center match. Of course, you had the Alcaraz performance at Roland Garros a couple of years ago. Um, but in some ways, this was this was more similar to that one. Uh, probably an even worse. Probably even more of a regression slightly, unfortunately, for Arcaras, uh, when it comes to his 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 maturity. But I think uh, you know, this loss will actually really keep him in check. And um, you know, like you said, basically, I think it was last year from Buenos Aires all the way to Wimbledon, he went forty seven and four and won you know those six titles. And it seems like he'll he could actually. I think in the last episode we were talking about him potentially maybe playing Buenos Aires and Rio would be too much. I actually think now you know he could use some of those. Some of that match rhythm for sure. Of course, he came into this tournament without any warm-ups. I mean, as did Medvedev and Sinner. So I don't really put place that as a, much of a reason why he lost. But also, I think um, not having Ferrero there, I think looking back at it in hindsight, maybe just Ferrero being the calming presence in his box, you know, someone that he gels quite well with, not necessarily even for tactical advice after every point, although we have seen, you know, that that seems to, you know, he is someone who uses Ferrero as more of a sounding board than most of the other top players. So... Maybe that was, he shut it down in the press conference when he was asked about it, because of course he also has, you know, another coach in his, in his box who is who is, has been with him quite a few times uh, when he's won big tournaments as well in the past. But I think all of these factors just sort of combine to to uh, a performance that uh, he'll learn a lot from, let's just say, because he, he produced those magic moments in the third set tiebreak, like you said, three or four passing shots, five winners overall in that breakers where I've got pretty tight but nonetheless I think a lot of people at that point were even thinking that it could be a five set comeback and that maybe you know uh you know we we will see him sort of raise his level and we, we have seen Zverev you know choke for lack of a better word in in these big matches in the past obviously the most famous being the 2020 US Open finals so uh, but uh but then once again at four all we saw we saw again Alcaraz kind of played a very bad game but Missed, missed a couple of backhands, and I felt like another thing in this match was just the backhand-to-backhand disparity in terms of their consistency and in terms of just, well, I guess, keeping the ball in play and waiting for the right shot. Zverev just had a huge edge, and Akras couldn't really figure out, even with a slice backhand, how to you know get out of that dynamic uh, a bit a bit better. And I think also the first serve, we saw it hurt him at times. Um, he wasn't getting enough first serves in in the first couple of sets, and I thought maybe after the third, it would... Definitely settled down a bit, but you do have to give Zverev quite a lot of credit for the game that he played to get to 4-all, because if, if Alcaraz potentially gets the break there, 
you know, maybe we're looking at a different match or even in the second set, if he somehow breaks at two, three, 15, 40, uh, you know, all of a sudden he, he goes up that break and maybe, maybe we see a completely different match, especially at 30, 40. I think he had a backhand cross court completely lined up, but uh, just missed the drive into the net. So of course these small mini chances, I'm probably talking way too long. So feel free to interrupt me at any point, but I think I've mentioned, uh, yeah, a lot of stuff. No, no, absolutely. I think um, what you said, um, now you are taking words out of my mouth a little bit because I was also thinking about that Ferrero thing and how like if, if someone really believes that it was going to be a big factor at this event, then probably, yeah, maybe the quarterfinal is something that we can look at it uh, because, well, yeah, just he starts the match so poorly. Maybe Ferrero just being there or like saying something not necessarily technical, but yeah. maybe it could have made a difference. But of course, we're not really going to be uh, maybe uh, considering it too much historically or like in a couple of years because well uh, he the, the the most important thing is how you play not 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 what the uh, not whether you have your coach alongside you and and of course uh, yeah he just didn't really handle it well tactically as he said like the backhands I think his main idea to get out of these backhand exchanges was like to go for the super risky flatter backhand cross and he went for it on some big points usually missing it i remember also this one great rally where he actually lands it and even though the shot was insane like it was it was really you know breathtaking at the same time it still went back you know it's still it's it, very still got it back i mean it still gave him nothing and i think it was a, it's just a good, perfect example of how uh the ideas that he had out of, for breaking out of these longer rallies later on especially when the match got um yeah just a little messier in the fourth set when it wasn't very attacking all the time it just showed that, yeah, I mean, that was all misguided, really, and that he he actually couldn't really blast his way through Zverev again. And I guess, in a way, that sort of makes us return to Ron Garros 2022, which, you know, is fine. I mean, it's it's pretty hard to uh, to hit through Zverev. Obviously, he's one of the best defenders in the game, despite the height, and actually maybe with the height, sort of using it to his advantage. And uh, yeah, from 3-4 down in the fourth, definitely Zverev starts hitting through the forehand again, that is the peak version. That is the most dangerous Zverev can get, especially as that shot really has very little technical flaws compared to how he usually plays it. And yeah. he, he just usually doesn't trust it. So sort of maybe similarly to uh, to Medvedev, uh, Zverev also just wasted so much time in the early rounds, but he was actually fine physically in the Alcaraz quarter. He was fine in the Medvedev semis. And uh, of course, he just sort of blew it mentally. So... Um, so, so that's a topic maybe for another day, but like, yeah, against Alcaraz, he was still able to hold his own, I guess, despite the third set choke, despite, despite the third set comeback, he was just, he just had a, enough of, enough of a lead, I guess, for that not to matter. But yeah, that, that second set as well, yeah, the 1540, um, that there were some minor opportunities there. And I guess you gotta wonder what would have happened if like Alcaraz playing like this actually gets a set on the board. Of course, being four to up wouldn't guarantee him taking a set, with, especially with how well he was playing, or rather, rather how poorly he was playing at the time yet. But um, still, maybe the match, if it's one set all, and actually Alcaraz has already has a set, despite not starting well at all, maybe it turns out being different. But but yeah, all in all, I don't think this is like a massively disappointing loss. In, 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 indeed, like Buenos Aires, Rio, it might be a plan right now. I think even one more win at the Australian Open and I wouldn't really like it right now, maybe, because if you play just Rio, you definitely run the risk of like, I don't know, getting someone tough in the second round losing and then or what did you really gain from that event? But uh, all in all, still probably the Sunshine Double will be like the most important part. However, a lot of players are choosing the South American circuit this year in order to prepare for the Olympics. That's going to be an important event for, for Alcaraz as well. So um yeah it's definitely it definitely won't hurt to really get some play time on clay by the way what do you think about like this this whole idea that uh players are choosing the south american circuit in order to prepare for the olympics like it's february is it really going to help you all that much you still have like three months of of the clay season later on yeah, I didn't. I didn't quite think of it as preparation for the Olympics. I, I'm not saying it is for Alcaraz, but like the, there are there are some players who said that. Yeah, like Draper, I think is, is playing there, right? Fils is definitely playing there for that. Vavrinka as well, like like some names that you usually wouldn't get there. I, I don't know if Alcaraz if it factored into the decision at all. Probably more so last year was 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 the key aspect, but. 
but yeah still like I, I for me it sounds a little unrealistic to actually hope to prepare a lot better for the olympics by playing a clay season uh, like a short short clay swing in february yeah that's interesting i mean i guess Bobrinka is not somebody that normally plays south american clay yeah. in february and feels not at all either i mean feels did so well in uh in the indoor season last year in in, here in europe right yeah, maybe it's just more more clay time. But honestly, it's the conditions are very different in yeah. South America. Clay, you know, you have a lot of altitude, and it's the weather is completely different, and it's not same as European clay. But that's an interesting choice by a lot of the players. But I think for Alcaraz, he just for him, it's been a good uh, it's been a good swing for him just getting into the Indian Wells and Miami, especially since his results in Australia. Or I mean, last year he didn't even play it. So for him, it's a good way to get get that court time and match reps and he can definitely work on quite a few of these strategic parts of his game and still win anyway because he he sort of has the, a bit more buffer than he would playing a a top player uh, in a in a major as his first event so from Algaraz's standpoint I definitely think uh, it's it makes sense to to play both right now um, so uh, but in terms of Alcaraz is strategy and tactics did you feel like a lot of the times, I mean, there's this conception that, of course, he is uh, a flashy shot maker. He likes to entertain the crowds. He's got this uh, unbelievable vast array of skills and and talent, and a lot of times he can pull it off. But maybe he's better off in some of these matches having a more simplified approach and game plan that he can stick to and perhaps rely a bit more on his ability to counterpunch at times uh, instead of trying to hit through everything on the forehand and maybe just you know, play some loopier forehands because he's very good uh, at a lot of those loopier forehands. For instance, you know, when he, uh, I feel like a lot of this has been lost the last six or seven months from him, the patience, because I think one of the things that we marveled at at Wimbledon in the final was how, you know, in the third and fourth sets against Djokovic, or especially, I guess, second and third, but more so, yeah, basically that part of the match. And even in the fifth, he was able to get a lot of more returns back into play, block some you know, move back on a lot of a lot a lot of the shots and just give himself a lot more time and space and margin. And I think when he's sort of in that panic mode that like he was in the first two sets, it's hard for him to really think clearly and find those solutions. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's fair to say that for sure. Um, the 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 response to this very serving this well was not to, you know, myself really focus on being let's say playing percentage tennis, playing effectively. When it comes to the crunch on the big points, he was not doing that at all. On the big points, he was actually more likely to just just go for broke. It is a fair argument as well that Alcaraz kinda doesn't have a big game for now. Like he is obviously amazing, but yeah, he's just not really able to one, one as I said the second ago, just play percentage tennis when it matters, or actually as you as you were mentioning, just rely maybe more so on his speed, his athleticism. So some of the things that make him great. Maybe the clay will remind him of that, you know, because it's such it's a surface where it's so important to turn points around. Uh, but but yeah that that that's why I also said earlier that like in the Kitzmanovic match, I don't know if he played smart because some of the choices that he was making like yeah they were so risky they were so bold they were so brave but everything was working right it's it's yeah. it's what happens when nothing is clicking on the day that really uh, determines i guess what sort of player you're going to be and of course in a major in seven matches there's probably at least one that's going to be tough for you i mean sometimes it doesn't hold up but for the most part usually we expect at least one tough match and here he wasn't able to get out of it for sure uh, who knows what happens later on if he if he beats Zverev, but obviously here he actually didn't manage to step up. And I think, yeah, especially that ability to just play maybe a bit safer on the key points, especially on serve, when he was the one trying to sort of keep himself in the match. That was really, really missing so much from 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 his performance here, which again comes comes we sort of come back to that twenty year old argument and how this performance just yeah, wasn't too mature. Uh, he was playing someone who put so much pressure on him as well with that 90%-ish first serve, first serve in rate, which is, of course, pretty much um, impossible to sort of match, impossible to beat when you're still going for your serve. It wasn't like Zverev was taking something off. Uh, and um, yeah, 
the, the response to that pressure, despite Alcaraz having a pretty good serve now, he can still be very messy in how he plays right after it and how he follows it up. And uh, that's not a good combination, especially on such a fast, well, maybe not such a fast is, is too much, but on a pretty fast hard court, it's, it's definitely quite hard then to make up uh, for any errors that you might sort of yourself fall into when the opponent is serving like that. So, yeah, I mean, it, it is pretty fair to say that, that, um, yeah, he doesn't really have, well, he might have that B game. He might have it somewhere in him. He's definitely shown it in the past, but he's not really able to tap into it recently. Like recently when he, when the going gets tough, he loses these matches for the most part. And uh, I guess, yeah, maybe, maybe actually the clay will be a good surface for him to sort of relearn that and, uh, of course, this is this is definitely uh, one of the main aspects of his career so far. So, like, really just showing that around the clay, he's got amazing footwork. He can slide everywhere and just track down every ball and return to all of these rallies where the opponent starts on the front foot and and when the opponent is just at, at first dominating, but you know he comes up with some ridiculous get, he comes up with some great pass, he comes up with something that. Uh, theoretically, he shouldn't really be able to to turn around. So yeah, maybe actually playing Buenos Aires and New York can also be a a savior in this um, way. Yeah, yeah, all pretty good points. I think the clay is just you know, well, the clay is supposed to build your patience and shot tolerance. Yeah. So it's it's where I think we're only going to see more of those skills come into the fore because we saw that this time, and I think we saw that in Indian Wells, of course, where we both think that uh, you know. Even if Djokovic is in the draw, we put him as a favorite, just because those conditions are so great for him. Uh, you know, in in the yeah, those those store higher bouncing hard courts. But um, I'm trying to think if there's any other big talking points as for the performance tournament as a whole. I think tournament as a whole can be a good uh, starting starting point for him as well. Just getting to the quarters for the first time. You know, it's not the best result obviously but i think uh you seem to be pretty for the most part uh, upbeat about how he can take this take the positives from the first week and you know maybe use it for the rest of the season of course didn't always find his best rhythm here i mean you know we mentioned the match against sonego that was maybe a classic sort of shot making contest and then his match against shang was cut cut short and then against Kachmanovic he was just so brilliant in a way that maybe maybe it actually ended up hurting him. Yeah, I mean as a whole I think the tournament was pretty average, I guess. He yeah. still made the quarters, which is which is obviously really good. And uh it's been a while since he lost early in a major as well. So so that's absolutely fine. And um as you said, I mean this was the first Australian Open since becoming a top player, really. Uh, when he when he played it at the end of 2020, sorry, at the beginning of 2022, he was still ranked like around 30 ish. Uh, yeah. Of course, lost that third set, uh, that fifth setter to Berrettini, which was actually really good at the time. It was a great result for him at the time at the Australian Open. So um, yeah, it, it's not a horrific result for him to lose in the quarters to Zverev, especially as Zverev did have one of his peak moments in the first two sets of the semi and also in the quarterfinal. But um, yeah, it's it's also not really something that I can. Take, I guess, you know, to say that, you know, this was a great round. This was a very positive result for him. I mean, it, it was fine. Let's keep yeah, going. Like that, that's literally the attitude, I think. Yeah, um, fair. I think also looking at the rest of the tournament, of course, Zverev then goes up to Sesulov against Medvedev in that semi. And, uh, you know, you sort of had the Daniil doing what he sort of did all tournament, which is find uh, a way to play really aggressive when. <laughs> Uh, you know, we saw him basically do this for six sets. Uh, you know, the fifth set against Hercotch, the last two, I guess, sets three and four against Zverev. I would say we saw that the sort of peak aggressive Medvedev, and then the first couple of sets against Sinner, where he really came out and had a different plan altogether, taking the ball super early, coming in, actually putting away some really, really tough, tough volleys. And of course, you know, just sort of trusting his first strike tennis in a way, which is, you know, I mean, we'd seen glimpses of, of this version of Medvedev in the past when he was coming up like summer of 2019, and you know. As a as a top player, I say coming up, you know, when he finally broke in the in, in the top ten, and he had that sort of magical summer, um, and we saw him, you know, serving and volleying his way back from two sets of love down in the final of the U.S. Open against Nadal, and just sort of, you know, the some of those some of that 
uh, wow factor that Medvedev brought earlier, that unpredictability, you know, uh, mixed in with obviously his his uh, normal keeping the ball in play and forcing the opponent to make errors and serve big. So sort of that version of Medvedev was able to appear quite a lot of times and it actually almost got him all the way through the, the title despite, uh, you know, over 24 hours on, on court. It would have been one of the most, uh, you know, magical runs of, of any player really in the open era to win, what, what was it, four or five setters in a row? I don't think that's ever been done. So that, uh, you know, he almost nearly p- pulled it off. Of course, it ended up biting him a little bit in the last three sets against center and then he didn't have much left in the tank, understandably, but yeah, I mean, what do you sort of make of Medvedev's performance, semifinal, final, and yeah, the match against Zverev? Four or five setters in a row? Who did Medvedev play in the fourth round? I'm, I'm forgetting now. I meant uh, just in the... Not in a row, right? In, in general, row, yeah. Rusevori in, in the second. Okay, never mind. Never mind then. But but yeah, um, I'm actually sort of tying this into Alcaraz. I'm really excited to see their next match, actually. Because if Medvedev is able to like have this... I'm not saying all the time because uh, I'm definitely not saying that he should be playing like this all the time. However, like if he's just able to maybe have this as a permanent fixture in his game, as a permanent option in his game to uh, move up the court a little bit when the when the time comes, sort of when when it's necessary. Also, um, yeah, just just play a lot more aggressively. Use that flat ball striking not only to like yeah defend with it but also to actually give so much issues to the opponent when i don't know going back and cross for example uh, yeah i mean that that that's something that he should be tapping into from from time to time at least and against alcara specifically of course this has been a matchup where the defensive positioning the fact that he's free 4 meters behind the court this has been hurting him a lot both when it comes to the servant volleying out wide but also for, thanks to the drop shot thanks to the net approaches in general in the points so um, I think maybe at Wimbledon it was in the third set when he tried to move up into the court against Alcaraz because he was just getting blown off the court. And yeah, he just couldn't get a racket on anything. And right now he's yeah, actually able... At, body source and like yeah. And like right now at the Australian yeah. Open, he is able to actually stand, let's say, two meters uh, uh, you know, outside the baseline on the first serve and then basically on the baseline for the first, second serve against some of the best servers in the world as well. Because in the sets that he did it against, he did it against Sinner, he did it against Medvedev, he did it against Hurkacz. All of these guys are probably like top 10, 15 servers at least in that right now. So Medvedev is very, of course, it meant. And um, yeah, I mean, if, if he's just able to maybe tap into that against against someone like Alcaraz, against someone like Djokovic, who was also servant volleying a ton against him, that could only help him really if, if, if that becomes like a mode that he can turn on at will and then perhaps also turn off at will. Uh, so I'm very excited to see if if this actually becomes a thing in, in for example, the Alcaraz-Medvedev matchup. As a whole, of course, um, he ends up losing the title and he's 1-5 down. But certainly he still shows that he is, for the, for the moment at least now, he is still able to, to keep up with these guys. I think Medvedev, of course, is in that pretty rough spot along with his whole generation, really, where the big three st- were stopping them for a while. Novak probably still isn't done stopping him yet. I don't know about Rafa. Let's say for now that he's not a factor, but let's say that just just Djokovic still isn't probably quite fully done stopping him from claiming big titles yet. Of course, and then you have Sinner, Alcaraz, maybe Runa. I mean, at least two players from the fresher, from the younger generation who are, well, they definitely have a stronger upside. For now, it might be pretty close between them uh, in individual matches, but they definitely have a stronger upside going into the future. So, of course, Medvedev's big strength there is that he already has a slam title. So I guess the pressure isn't as high on him, but but yeah, it's it's definitely a big shame for him to have a 1-5 record and two sets to love up also in two finals, right? So so um, it would feel very unfair. It would feel very unfortunate if he only ends up with one. But with every single opportunity like this, of course, we're going to be talking about it and we're going to be thinking of it as a possibility because it, if, if anything, it feels like the youngsters will be getting um, you know, we'll be getting better. We'll be getting sort of more uh, away from from the level that Medvedev is at at the moment. However, yeah, maybe if he can reintroduce sort of, uh, yeah, maybe if he can introduce some new aspects, maybe if he can reinvent himself in a way like he did this event, maybe that will help him keep up with Sinner and Alcaraz in individual matches at the very least. Uh, it's it, we definitely didn't see the the actual sort of outcome of the final, how it would work if Medvedev wasn't so tired. 
because funnily enough like maybe he actually loses the first two sets if he's not so tired because maybe he enters the match uh, not going for it maybe he enters the match just sort of trying to beat Sinner at his usual game which recently hasn't been working out for him so maybe uh, yeah I mean I, I just think we we don't know that of course these are these are all what ifs but I just think we would have gotten a very different dynamic in the final if if that wasn't the case if he didn't know he has to go for it that he has to go for broke because otherwise the body isn't going to hold up so uh, it, it it's pretty wild for sure and and yeah the next Medvedev Alcaraz matchup definitely one of the most interesting things we've had of late sort of tactics wise and to see what Daniel is going to go for and what approach is uh, you know how his approach is going to change in re in re relation to the matches at the ATP finals or Wimbledon or Indian Wells when he was just getting seven volleyed out wide 90% of the time and couldn't do anything yeah yeah uh, all pretty well said I will say um, for Medvedev you know when he played when he played center he definitely shot center those first couple of sets with yeah. the power that he was bringing and just the way he was well just you know overmatching center even in ground stroke speeds off both wings and just really uh you know played those first two sets almost like how Djokovic played them at the ATP finals but then of course he couldn't really sustain you know that level of regression when it came to almost closing the match out like it was four all deuce in that third set and i guess he missed like a pretty routine forehand and then the camera like took a very close up look at his face and entourage and already you could see like the match was changing and I guess maybe the early part of the the final in the second set sort of when Medvedev didn't get it done at 5-1 that was maybe a telltale sign that okay maybe you know this match is going to start getting more complicated now and perhaps we're already kind of seeing his source serve percentage drop a bit and perhaps the ground stroke speeds as well and we're seeing Sinner move back on the return of serve, up his level of serving. So it was very much two matches in one, and in some ways a pretty simple match to analyze. <laughs> I guess when you're looking at, when you have two completely different matches like this within the same match. But uh, but yeah, no, I definitely think that Medvedev for now is still very much holding his own in the, in the top four. Uh, still will give himself plenty more chances. Actually, a, a performance like this, even though he lost from two sets to level up, I mean, it couldn't be more different than the Nadal match. A yeah. couple of years ago, which is one I think he'll really regret, because there there were several chances, and I don't think he really held it together mentally all throughout that whole uh, final. Of course, the crowd also got to him there, but in this one, you really felt like there actually wasn't that much more he could have done. And uh, you know, if we see Medvedev like this, because I think there is still such a big difference legacy wise between a you know, between one slam and two slams. Usually, like between zero and one is the biggest one, but then right after that, between one and two is still pretty big. And then after two, it's pretty much all just gravy. So I guess, you know, if Medvedev is able to get one more on the board, you know, that would, I think he's he's by far the best one-slam player that I've seen in the, you know, in the open era, or at least since 1990. Hmm. Between all the players that are at one-slam, I mean, he's come by far the closest to a second one. And resume-wise, certainly has the best overall resume. Like, if you just looked at his resume outside of the majors, you would think, you know, he has... He has one. Yeah, he's like, in like that Murray Vavrinka tier, really, without yeah. being without without having. Well, Murray maybe maybe it's a it's a bit of a stretch, of course, to put Murray and Vavrinka next to next to one another, given Andy was so much better in all the other tour events. But let's say just Vavrinka then. Let's let's just say Vavrinka. Like despite having one slam and Stan having three, I mean they're basically, you know, one one has some amazing records with the number one and uh, tour events. Wawrinka has three slams. I mean, he's basically right up there with Stan for me in like terms of legacy. It's just that, of course, he has one slam. And yeah, I mean, historically, it, it might sort of hold him back when it comes to yeah the records, the history books and how he's remembered. Hopefully not, because as I said, I mean, just yeah. would feel very unfair. And at five out of last seven slam finals on hard courts, that's just insane. And also let's, uh, let's also uh, sort of look at how when Medvedev doesn't make a final at the, at the hard court slam, that, that's when we have the random results like Kasper Ruud mm -hmm. making the final at the US Open or even Stefano Tsitsipas. That's kind of random. But uh, yeah, five out of seven is just insane. Yeah, for sure. And then, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure what else, uh, you know, in terms of the men's tournament overall, I guess the most surprising thing was just, you know, Djokovic and Alcaraz both coming out and playing the first two sets that they did, really. Because, I mean, if you had told me before the start of this event that Medvedev or Sinner could win it, I would have been like, yeah, sure. 
Um, you know, it's certainly possible because they're all fairly very strong right now, the top four. So certainly them, certainly Sinner winning it is not the biggest surprise in the world, but I guess it is just shocking how Djokovic and Djokovic and Alcaraz both had a pretty bad day and both had pretty rough starts and both were sort of able to recover it a little bit, but never really, you know, get all the way back and really push their level after after taking that third set. So I guess, yeah, these these number one ranking feels up for grabs right now. The top four feels like they've separated themselves from the rest of the tour, but also there's quite a lot of work to do where any number of these rivalries right now, it feels like they could go either way. Center Djokovic, Center Medvedev, you know, Alcaraz, Medvedev, Alcaraz, like it, they all feel like almost 50-50 type matchups. Obviously, you would favor one over the other depending on whatever surface they're playing on, but it definitely feels like, yeah, we're, we're starting to see those uh, rivalries bring out the best in each other. Yeah, I think ahead of the Australian Open, it was pretty clear that there's like four main favorites for the title. Anyone else is a little bit of a shock already. And yeah, Sinner and Medvedev, of course, they were in that top four. Maybe not one, perhaps at number two when it comes to Sinner, perhaps at number three. That was like a difference of opinion, really. But um, but yeah, um, it, it's not an outrageous result. Definitely not. Of course, Yannick keeping that up after the the previous season, uh, the the way he ended it. And also like the entire Fortnite just playing with a lot of margin, not really painting the lines and being able to sustain that level because it wasn't really tough for him to sustain it. Like this is really how he plays right now. This is this is how he can play on a regular basis. This is this is what he can bring day in, day out. So uh, so he can make out and yeah, on every single day. So um that was that was that was probably the most impressive thing that he never really looked he never really seemed to be peaking in the process. And yeah, um, maybe a, 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 a along the way on the in the tournament, we also got some contenders like Zverev or Hurkacz, who kind of could have, I think both could have won the event really, because imagine Hurkacz beats Medvedev and then he has to play Zverev and Sinner to win the title. I guess it's it's not impossible. So perhaps after all, the amount of contenders sort of went up along the way. But yeah, Sinner Medvedev, of course, it's not really that um, that big a surprise and to, to, to see these guys in the final. And um, Sinner, I guess, from now on has to be treated sort of perhaps evenly with Djokovic and Alcaraz in terms of his prospects of dominating the the f- tour this year, the, the whole season. Yeah. Medvedev kind of missed a trick, of course, by not uh, getting the title. But as he said, I also don't really blame him for that loss too much. He did return to like the the more neutral, the more neutral, the more defensive approach in the next sets. But then again, with how he was tired, how tired he was. I definitely, yeah, the Nadal loss is the one that stinks. This one is probably a lot easier to take for him, I I would assume at least. Yep, that's certainly how he's looking at it. And he seemed like just a lot more like willing to take the positives. Um, And yeah, definitely Sinner is up there with with Djokovic and Alcaraz. I I guess I'm just sort of interested to see how the clay season goes for Sinner. You know, how does he... Mm -hmm. Does he put himself really up there with Carlos and Novak on clay? Because right, and right now there's still that little bit of question mark. I mean, he has made a Roland Garros quarterfinal and a Monte Carlo semifinal last year, but apart from that, we haven't seen that consistent clay stretch from him. And I guess last year that was maybe the only maybe disappointing part of his season, if you can really call it, call it that. Of course, he also got sick, I think, and didn't play in Madrid and pulled out of the event in Barcelona once he got to the latter stages. So, yeah, there's a little bit of that. Of that question mark sure of and how he follows it up but i have no doubt that he's gonna put himself in contention at all the four majors honestly um yeah yeah he was amazing at the sunshine double as well last year so it's not like he's gonna be just wasting time until i'm definitely not so uh i think yeah at this stage we cannot exclude the possibility of him getting the number one this year because of course he has a very good head start on on everyone yeah. it's still so much work it's still so much time he would need to follow up his results from the latter half of last year, I suppose, as well. But uh, in order to like be at at the year end, but in the middle of the season, it's it's certainly very possible for him. But so yeah, uh, any tournament starts right now. I think Sinner is definitely going to be mentioned in the conversation of the favorites, along with Djokovic, Alcaraz, with some of the events definitely, including Medvedev as well. 
And uh, that's really, uh, I think you also mentioned earlier that the Alcaraz um, Djokovic match was very similar. I was supposed to talk about that, but then I forgot. But but yeah, pretty much I, I had the same to say. Like this, these were just identical stories. I guess the only main difference is that one upon, one player is 20, the other is 36. And that actually could also sort of result in weaker performances but but i think maybe maybe the main difference was that it wasn't that djokovic wasn't really playing smart or something i mean he was just so off <laughs> 29 unforced errors i think in 90 points in the first two sets so usually in tennis we have like a pretty even breakdown between let's say at the top level at least we have a pretty even breakdown between winners forced errors and unforced errors and djokovic was just covering for that for that 33 percent he was covering just by himself and you can you really cannot win matches <laughs> when you're playing like this. So I don't know. Uh, I this guess is the most shocking thing ever because I mean on center mm-hmm. serve, I take the stats. I think he in the zero to four shot category on center serve, he only lost four points. And like one of those was it was it was like the most uh, abysmal type of returning that I've ever seen because I mean for Djokovic's high caliber standard, like he didn't get to break point and I think yeah, it was, the, didn't get to it was break the first point. time that it never happened for him in any Grand Slam match throughout his whole career. So, yeah. Pretty yeah, much. and I think we checked that and that never happened for Federer and Nadal either, right? So, yeah, so yeah, it's uh, it's definitely pretty wild. I mean, some of the credit has to be on Sinner. His serve return game was really good on the day. Again, he was so good at just playing efficiently with a lot of margin, but just outplaying Djokovic sort of slowly. But, uh, but yeah. I mean that was that was a pretty horrific showing, and I guess similarly to like as you said, Medvedev was taking it pretty well. I think Djokovic was also taking it pretty well because like maybe sometimes it's even easier to take a loss like this when nothing is working for you rather yeah. than losing you know to an opponent who, who's going to outplay you despite you doing your best. And um, well, of course, in in both cases, Alcaraz, Zverev, and Sinner Djokovic, uh, Sinner Djokovic. Both things can be true at the same time. One player was poor, the other was, you know, playing at a very high standard. Yeah, definitely. Um, of course, there was also the the wrist thing with Djokovic, and then you know he's playing a day match, which uh, I guess is more about the wind for me than the actual heat because it was yeah seventy degrees. So I think the wind definitely was maybe a sort of a factor in his timing being off a, a little bit. But but then again, you know. Yeah, we we have seen some weird performances from him in the win, but nothing quite like what we saw on uh on the in the semis with all those unforced errors. But yeah, I mean Sinner's second serve and his first Sinner's serve improvement is like the number one thing for me in terms of if you're looking at his the progression the last six or seven months. I mean you have to put in the serve as like really a huge weapon now. Uh, along yeah. with of course, yeah, just the added variety that we saw from him, for example, in the Beijing final against Medvedev where he really sort of used all that variety and drop it, shots. It's the most and... important thing in the Medvedev matchup. And since puking, Sinner has yeah. beaten Medvedev four times. So this is actually wow. massive, right? That the, the 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 one matchup really already changes so much. I mean, they've played three finals together, and and also the ATP finals semi. So yeah, yeah. And of course, you know, Sinner won three of those four matches, just trusting that he can he can outlast Daniel from the baseline yeah. now. In long rallies in three of the four i guess we didn't really see that so much in Beijing, but like yeah from vienna and the atp match and finals match and then here i mean and i think like if we're talking just about the serve that three all game in the fourth set that's what really won him the entire tournament because he was down break point and then you know he pulls up that sneaky serve goes t hits an ace i guess three hit three aces in that game and just yeah really got out of trouble because yeah, Medvedev was still pretty competitive at that point, and you still felt like, you know, maybe he could get that one break that would just, you know, be the rest of the match for him because he was still holding on to his serve. But, wow. Yeah, just, uh, I guess we, we learned quite a lot about all of these four, and I guess it was kind of important to touch on all of them just in relation to Alcaraz and the Sunshine Spring coming up because, yeah, I mean, if we get all these four playing these these events, we're going to see these matchups over and over again throughout the whole year unless some other players really step up. Which uh, for now, I guess Zverev is a pretty strong number five if he can keep playing like this. Uh, you'd expect that Runa, with the amount of talent and skill that he has, uh, is definitely like Runa and Zverev to me are like the two in the you know rest of the top ten that could you know really possess serious danger to these top four seeds if they ended up playing each other in the, in the quarters as well. Uh, Horkacz as well, yeah, has to be pretty strong right now the way he's 
Yeah, just because when when he's playing a big name like you know with the serve it can always get a, be a lottery. I think he has like a forty percent top ten record or something like that. So yeah, that's pretty good actually. That's not yeah uh, yeah forty percent is is pretty decent I would say. And I mean yeah, we also saw some really good stuff from Taylor Fritz. So you know he's also someone who yeah I mean on if if one of these guys are off maybe he can he can do top five ball striker. Yeah, top five ball striker. That's right. So uh, but yeah. Uh, I think that about does it for the men's men's tournament as a whole. If we move on to the women's, um, of course, we were wondering how Noshkova would hold up after beating Shiantek. And unfortunately, we didn't get to see that because one of the saddest moments of the events was, unfortunately, Svidalina, you know, was back giving out in the fourth round. And I was very curious to see sort of, well, that section of the draw, how it would unfold after we saw Pegula go out, Rubakina, Shiantek, uh, and a lot of the... I see. I think Vondrosa also lost to Yastremska in the first match. Probably not as surprising as the other upsets, but still. Uh, you know, we saw this wide open section and we saw Zhang take advantage of it and get to the, the final without facing anyone in the top 50. But I was sort of maybe looking at Svirulina and Azarenka as, with their experience, uh, especially Azarenka, uh, and, and also Svirulina, I guess, with the way she'd been. This post-motherhood version of Svirulina, which is a lot more aggressive. We thought maybe there were some some chances there, but Zhang, I think, you know, has made a final and actually pretty ahead of schedule because, um, well, this is probably a result that we thought was coming at some point, but I probably didn't expect it to come this soon, uh, already in the in the final. And I guess she did well to sort of handle the the pressure once all the top seats, uh, you know, fell out. And well, yeah, now she's going to be in the top ten, and I think she can probably build on this because she was totally outplayed in the final. Uh, from Sabalenko, who had a totally dominant event. But what did you sort of make of that top half Iga's section and what, what ended up transpiring? Yeah, I mean, Rybakina, Pegula, Świątek, they all went out. I think that le- that left Kinven as the highest seed left, I guess, unless I'm forgetting yep. about something. But it would make sense because it would be four from the uh, from the top 12. Oh, no, actually, maybe I'm forgetting about someone. Yeah, I must be forgetting because... Well, she was left the highest seed left, I think, after Vondrousheva as well, and like yeah, one more. Lost first, though. But so. but yeah, she lost first round, and that's why I I'm not even counting here. But um, yeah, I think Kinven gets uh, gets a pass for the soft draw that she had, just because everyone knows how talented she is and that she was gonna get there eventually. It's like similar yeah. to me as when Alcaraz went um won the U.S. Open and reached number one. And no one really outside of Djokovic fans like cared about the fact that it's a very easy number one with 6k points because we all knew that he was going to st- start winning more soon. Uh, and for Kinvan, I guess it's pretty similar. Like, I don't care that she had a soft draw because obviously she belongs at the top. Like right now she's seventh in the WTA rankings. I think there's a very clear top four, maybe five with Pagula as well. With like Pegula and Goff especially separating themselves with consistency. Of course, Goff after the North American swing is is higher than than Pegula, definitely. And then you have like a lot of players who sort of rely on one or two big results. So it really wouldn't be outlandish to have Kinven at six, at seven. And yeah. of course, she is at seven right now. She's gonna have a lot to gain as well until that second part of the year when she really fired up. And um, yeah, I think the the main part for her right now is that she has horrific matchups against Rybakina and Sabalenka. Less so against Świątek, but still, she played her five times and she wasn't able to do it. Obviously, there's still a lot of like uh, debate when it comes to her serve and how it's so dangerous. But at the same time, can you really start getting it in more without decreasing the the power of it, the threat coming from it? Uh, but yeah, certainly the, the the sort of overwhelming weight of shots that Sabalenka has on both wings, that wasn't ever going to be a good matchup for Kinven. I think even in the semifinal against Jastremska, we saw that. But it was good for her to to start capitalizing on these draws. And I guess that's part of what she's been doing so well since uh, August, right? That at the US Open, she has an easy draw. She makes it to the quarters. That's something she wasn't able to do before, even when the opportunities were there. Here, of course, a slightly easier draw, despite how good uh, Kalinskaya or Yastemska are at their peaks. And she makes it, despite also having a tough match, like at the US Open in the third round. At the US Open, it was against Bronzetti, and at the US Open, against Yafan Wong. So basically, I think uh, that's still a big step up for her. 
And if you just look at, you know, her results since, let's say, Cincinnati, since the US Open, I mean, she really hasn't lost to a, like a non-top 10 player in ages. I think Hadat Maya is her worst, worst loss since. So basically, uh, it's only been the been Sabalenka, Rybakina, Świątek and Hadat Maya in the last five losses for Zheng. So that kind of says it all about how consistent she's been. And actually, yeah, out of the, all these players ranked, let's say, between 6 and 10 on the WTA rankings right now, she's actually the one who's like the most consistent there. All the others are um, sort of based on one, two, three good results, especially, of course, Vondroushova, who's got over 50% points from Wimbledon. Yeah, for sure. That consistency since Wimbledon for Zhang has been has been there. In a way, I kind of think it's like similar to like how Coco got to the final of Roland Garros in 2022 mm-hmm. and sort of had like a pretty good draw. And then, but you felt like she wasn't quite ready to start making slam finals on the regular yet. Uh, and then and then we sort of saw her get there in a year, year and a half's time. And then, of course, she was also outplayed by Shiontek on uh, Philip Chatrier, which is kind of now becoming Sabalenka's thing to Sabalenka's majors now become Australian Open. And for Ika, it's, it's been Roland Garros. But I guess Sabalenka as a whole, throughout the whole tournament, this was, uh, you know, we mentioned Sinner kind of playing within himself and you know, uh, didn't feel like he had to do anything extra special compared to his level the last six or seven months to win the event. For Sabalenka, this was also felt like a much more controlled version, you know, much more sort of reliable, you know, no fuss, get to the final with dropping like, you know, 26 games and like really just being overpowering for a lot of her opponents, but I thought also playing a bit smarter, maybe, you know, not going for as many sort of hit or miss lines and just playing very safe to big targets um, and just yeah I mean like I was checking I think like almost 50% of her points that she won last year on route to the title she dropped one set uh, it, almost 50% of those points were just direct winners and here it was more like 36-35% because she was forcing mm-hmm. a lot of errors out of her opponent as opposed to hitting direct winners if that makes sense so I think it kind of speaks to how uh, yeah Sabalenka's found a way to really sort of control that uh, aggression in a much more consistent manner. I mean, you wouldn't have said, if you had said to me two years ago that she'd have made like eight semi, eight out of the last 10 majors, she'd be making semifinals. I think none of us would have really believed that level of. And six of the last six. Knew. That's Everyone probably knew the, she had even the ability more. to win multiple majors. But I didn't think she had this week in, week out ability like she does now. So that is, uh, yeah. And in terms of the just the majors itself, there's no one better than her right now. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Iga's, Iga's records don't compare at all, definitely. Outside of Ron Garros, of course, last year, she didn't really have a deep run at any any other slam. The The fourth round was the was the furthest that she got. And, um, well, sorry, the quarterfinals at Wimbledon, of course, but the fourth round at the Australian Open and the US Open, which was still great. I mean, making the second week at all four majors is actually still very impressive. And I think the last maybe couple of seasons uh, or, or like um, there, there, there's already been a, a couple of moments when Iga is actually the most consistent player when it comes to that on the tour. But right now, Sabalenka, of course, takes the cake. Absolutely. I mean, six out of the last six semifinals, that's probably even more impressive to me than eight out of 10. Mm-hmm. That that really shows you like the whole uh, surface consistency, but at the same time, yeah, just getting there without having a very controlled playstyle in general. So um, yeah, it, it, it's definitely quite amazing. She she did play so well the entire fortnight that it felt like only, again, these mental issues could stop her from getting over the line. Uh, they did show up for a bit in the golf uh, semi, for sure. But I think that especially the way she was able to like turn around that 5-2, the, the, the loss of that 5-2 lead into like a perfect tiebreak because the tiebreak was like unplayable. And then also get out of issues in the 5-4 game when she was trying to serve it out with some amazing serving. Again, the final was probably too too good of a matchup for her to really uh, make her struggle because I mean it was so so comfortable for her from the get-go. But uh, yeah, the semi-final win was definitely amazing for her mentally. She has two slams now, which, as you said, is a big deal, whether you have one or two. Uh, and I guess, yeah, going forwards, it just puts a little bit more pressure on Świątek at Roland Garros as well to like sort of Sabalenka has stepped up at her slam. Świątek now has to step up at hers. Uh, and um, I, I know that this this mad, this uh, run from Arena, like it definitely made uh, people sort of go 
all out on her and I, i've seen some twitters uh, twitter talk about like calendar grand slam or something like that or like yeah it's definitely way too early or like how she's always going to be beating Świątek now because look at her level i mean it, it was only two months ago that Świątek plays this excellent match against her in cancun and like you know a very Djokovician composed efficient performance we said um on the last episode that like it makes sense what she was saying about like never feeling comfortable here in Melbourne and that she couldn't really rely on her tactics and her intuition. She sort of had to just think about some stuff that usually come natu comes naturally. But um, yeah, I still definitely am not in the camp that, that says, okay, so if Iga and Sabalenka play, for example, let's play Indian Wells now, that Arena is going to be massive, the massive favorite. I mean, definitely not. Uh, we've we've seen that uh, the conditions matter a great deal in this matchup, and I I am very excited to see them play again and um, sort of check for myself. But I think uh, some people have like jumped to a lot of conclusions after this event, which doesn't seem right to me. But of course, Sabanka was unbeatable here, and uh, even though she just defends her points, of course, this also gives her a lot of um, sort of number one possibilities later in the year because losing two K points here would have been. Uh, crucial but right now she gets well if we're looking at the WTA race a very nice head start over her rivals again because last year as we remember in the WTA race she was leading like basically the entire year yeah yeah I don't look at this and go like oh my goodness you know she's gonna tear through the rest of the year I look at it more as like wow so she's proven it again in Australia and she's proven that she's a force at all the main four meters that she plays and uh it's probably going to, well, you know, it's not like Shvantec is just sitting there, you know, watching this and like all of a sudden, you know, not believing that she can also do it, put together, you know, more more streaks like the ones she's done, she's done the last couple of years. And I guess the question is just what's going to happen when they play each other again? Because we didn't really get to see that matchup from Madrid all the way till the WTA finals as regularly. And that's actually because Sabalenka was... Uh, you know, was losing early sometimes or Shantek didn't get all the way first at the US Open or uh, other cases where they haven't always managed to peak at the very same moment. So hopefully we get that uh, again because their their match in Madrid was quite good. The match in Stuttgart was very good. And of course, the, the match at the WTA finals was just, yeah, Iga really playing super well in those favorable conditions for her also. Uh, but yeah, I kind of I really want to see them play each other in the sunshine swing and, you know, on slower clay as well. I mean, we almost got it at Roland Garros and she should have won that match in the semi there. So it, uh, if one of these players, if one of the other beats the other at their favorite slam, then you mm -hmm. know, it's kind of like a big statement win at the right yeah. now. But like, I guess if if we were sort of, you know, just trying to, let's say, Świątek beats Noshkova, she gets to the final does she beat Sabanka? Like, what are her chances? I would still Probably say pretty not. slim, right? Probably not not as favorable here. Yeah, pretty slim. So, so, so I think at least that sort of in the from a sort of Świątek perspective, uh, something that we're looking at this slam, like the the loss to Noshkova probably didn't stop her from winning the title. I think Sabalenka likely would have. However, of course, with how the draw opened up, uh, it was it was likely to have, get a deep run. You know, picked up her level match by match, and then maybe, yes, maybe I mean she probably right plays better then, in the final than in the third round. Yes, and then maybe you know I think also the heavier ball of Sabalenka, you know, sometimes doesn't bother Iga quite as much as maybe the flatter strike of Rubakina, maybe. Yeah, but uh, you know, there's some there's usually been some chances at least for it to be a sort of all out hitting baseline contest, and then you know the better the person who deals with pressure the best. She hasn't really had a blowout loss to to Sabalenka, yeah. definitely not. Unlike Rybakina, I know the ribs in Indian Wells, but but still, yeah, like it definitely feels like if if Rybakina comes out there and just you know plays her sort of first strike tennis on serve and return, then Iga's in big trouble. But against Sabalenka, it, it it feels like you know she will always be in the match and have yeah have some chances, and you know hasn't lost in straight sets yet. So and overall has a six three head to head edge and. Too much. The only conditions that have really helped Sabalenka so far have been indoors and altitude clay. So, yeah, that's why uh, you know. But but also we haven't really seen as many matches as the new version of Arena. So that should be said as well. But just free last year. I I, I do tend to sort of treat 
Sabalenka, let's say maybe even the 2022 US Open and and after that this could be like the birth of, of new Sabalenka. But I sometimes tend to look at um, basically every head-to-head for her as like, okay, but how many of these matches happened 2023 and above and, and later? Yeah. <laughs> because that, like, that really like feels like it's a new... In the, in the fourth round for Arena and or even the Goff rivalry, one. right? I mean, she's still down, I think, in the head-to-head against Goff, but it doesn't feel like she should be at all. Like in 2023, she played two matches with her, of course, the US Open. Uh, yeah, she kind of bottled the final, but then she dominates the other match that they played. She, well, she was still pretty dominant here at the Australian Open, I think. So, so yeah, the Goff head to head, the Anisimova head to heads. It does feel like post 2023, Sabalenka is a very different beast. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, I think overall, I mean, we did have some memorable matches. On the women's side, and actually, Iga was one of them. I mean, I'm gonna remember that yeah. match against Danielle Collins for for a while, and same with, same with sort of the the Coco Sabalenka match, and maybe the Rubakina, you know that. Oh the, yeah, Rubakina Brinkova. I mean, obviously, yeah. Shock like that, and also just that tie break that they played insane stuff. But it's one of the best matches of the year already. I mean, we can we can definitely yeah. pencil it into like any top ten list for the end of the season. Absolutely. I mean, it's going to be there. It's an insane tiebreak along with a good narrative. But yeah, Sviontek matches are actually very exciting. I remember someone asking that on a on a Talking Tennis stream, like, what's been your favorite match of the event? Can be men or women? Uh, can be men or women? And I remember sort of giving an answer for the men and then just looking at the women, sort of thinking about it and saying that, honestly, all, all Sviontek matches were great, other than, of course, the Bakina Brinkova, because you actually had players sort of tackling her, you had players going for her, targeting her weaknesses. Of course, that's not good for Iga, really, that her matches were watchable, because it would be better to just keep pushing through, you know, 6-love, six 6-1 six every round yeah. and still be in the event. But this was definitely one of the more sort of watchable, very human performances, but at the same time, yeah, all the other players were stepping up. So it was definitely fun to see her uh, have to find a way. Unless, of, until, of course, she finally didn't in the third round. But I still think all three matches were very uh, exciting. And, and yeah, they, they they definitely brought up a lot of converse, conversation points. And, and uh, yeah, just the way that every single player was able to step up, actually push her. And then sort of the, the whole thing of whether she manages to respond or not. That was definitely quite watchable and a big contrast compared to the usual first three slam rounds for Świątek, which for the most part, of course, comes from the draw as well, because you rarely have to play Kenyon Collins and Noshkova in the first three rounds of a slam. Yeah. I mean, we've come on this podcast before and been like, mm, what do we say about these first three rounds? Because yeah. they've been so dominant and that's usually a credit to her and her, well, just, yeah, the- the way she just brushes aside so many opponents on the tour but like um i guess someone someone was mentioning this to me the other day uh, i think it was the tennis podcast that brought this conversation up but it was like Iga has a really high floor and a really high ceiling but she's still trying to figure out her middle if that makes sense like whatever the middle ground is between the floor and the the ceiling and i thought it was just kind of an interesting question to pose but like you know maybe that's why we are sort of seeing the we are seeing her, for example, like problem solve really, really well in one match and play like one of the matches of the year and kind of a moment that you think is like we're going to look back on this when she's holding the trophy or going really deep in the event. But usually in the next round, it hasn't quite panned out. Like, with, like you know, the bench yeah. and then this one here. So, yeah, I think maybe more mm-hmm. something like the middle ground. She still has a few things that are, well, pretty easily targetable, especially the second serve, but also the, the, the forehand um, grip. And like when the conditions aren't right, then if one of the opponents is like, you know, just very actively trying to target it and also like just peaking on the day, it can be a bit rough. So I guess that's like the main thing for me, I suppose. Uh, but of course, um, you know, that's something to work on in the future. And all in all, I mean, she's she's obviously won in every conditions by now. I do think that like uh, the Australian Open, it, it probably required something like at the US Open in 2022, like a couple of very tough wins to, to actually get there, which of course could have happened. I mean, she maybe she beats Collins, maybe she beats Noshkova and then uh, starts playing much better. I mean, that that's what really happened at the US Open. Uh, although the, the main difference, I guess, well, it, it wouldn't be the main difference, but again, she would have to push through Sabalenka as well. So, um, but but yeah. I think maybe maybe the main thing for me is that as good as she is and like sort of unbeatable for anyone outside the top 50, because there's like a certain 
caliber of opposition that is basically not beating her, whatever happens, really. They're just not used to that sort of weight of shot. They're just not used to the forehand topspin. And they're, they're just not beating her also to that sort of athleticism. And um, then again, like at the very top, the players with an extremely high ceiling in conditions that are right for it, they still have some targets that they can easily focus on. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, it gives us a lot to sort of ponder about when she does, because when she does go on a deep run um, in other tournaments and stuff, people would sort of be coming back and saying, well, what about the last three majors? You know, what's happened there? And, mm -hmm. You know, sort of. And that's sort of like the narrative that we'll be seeing her try to fix in the upcoming weeks and months. But, you know, we sort of know that she's going to be bringing, bringing a pretty high level at these 1000s. And usually just like Alcaraz, these are now conditions that are pretty pretty favorable to her, I will say. Um, of course, she hasn't won Dubai yet, I think. Uh, as That's probably maybe one of the only 1000s in the first half of the year, that Dubai and Madrid. But like, apart from that, we've basically seen her hold every other big trophy up until Wimbledon. So certainly she will be doing a lot more winning in the next few months. Yeah, I mean we should expect big stuff for sure during the WT thousand swing that we that is upcoming right now. Doha, Dubai, Indian Wells, Miami, at least two of these pretty much perfect conditions for her. Yeah, then of course Rome as well, if she plays it. That's always been really good. Uh, I'm, I'm saying if she plays it because if, if she like wins both Stuttgart and Madrid, it's possible for her to skip it just like she did in the past. But but yeah, I mean, in general, of course, that's a great event for her as well. So um, yeah, I think coming to Roland Garros, I would be very surprised if she doesn't win at least two of these big titles. And I would also include Stuttgart probably in these big titles because, well, yeah. it's a 500, it's stacked and, and it's definitely an event that is usually on her calendar. So let's say if she plays seven events from here to Laurent Garros, I would be surprised if like we don't get you know two titles, for example. And then of course Laurent Garros, the Olympics, we all know that this there will be a lot of pressure on her there this year, and we'll have to see how she how she tackles that. Yeah, but um, certainly exciting times ahead for both Iga and Carlos and the rest of the top players. And yeah, this February swing, March swing, this, we're gonna see we're gonna be seeing a lot more of Shantek and Alcaraz and. How they sort of adjust to the standard at the very top and uh, yeah we'll be following all of it and we'll keep doing more podcasts and for now this is our australian open recap thanks as always damien and uh yeah good fun yeah uh we'll see when the next episode will be uh definitely alcaraz is playing buenos Aires, right and is is dubai the same week or i don't even know yeah i think i think it is but um we will... either one either either the same week or one week later but it's it's around that same time anyway so uh, that's probably when we're going to be back, more or less. Yeah, I think we might not have an episode for another couple of weeks, but uh, no, we'll we'll have both of them sort of playing at the same time. And, and I also said Dubai, and I actually it is, it's Doha, but uh, yeah, it is the same week, it seems. Doha and, uh, Doha and, Buenos, Doha Aires. and Buenos Aires, yeah. And yeah, then Rio so. and Dubai in the same week, yeah. Yeah, so I think if, if all goes according to plan, we'll see them play those two weeks in a row and... We'll have more info then. Yep. And yeah, thanks again for listening, everyone. And uh, yeah, you know the you know the drill by now. But follow us all on social at Eva Carlos Tennis uh, at Damien Cust on Twitter and at Bunchy Two K as well. And uh, yeah, leave comments. They've always been pretty helpful in uh, iTunes and uh, keep tweet tweeting at us like uh, some of you guys love to do on on the social. And yeah, we definitely read all of it. And we're open to any sort of feedback suggestions and guests uh if you have a guest that you really like to invite on the show we'll keep it we'll keep that in mind for future especially if there's uh down periods when Eva and carlos are not playing because that usually helps us fill in that time but yeah this was this was fun and we'll be back with episode 23 in a few days cheers